top lex be like seven hours and 45 minutes what that's lame that's okay. right we should do a 24-hour tesla marathon for charity just keep it going perfect so we're literally we've been live for 10 seconds you heard it here first we're going for 24 hours and we're right raising money for a charity we don't know which one yet how about you guys pick we're going 24 hours here we go you guys ready <laughs> how's everybody doing friday 11.03 a.m October 21st, two days after earnings, Tesla earnings. I'm wearing my jersey. So here's what happened. And, and I'll be honest. Last week, we didn't have a, a stream because I was in Georgia. And I didn't get to wear my Penn State jersey on Friday. And guess what happened? Penn State lost. They got blown out by Michigan. So I have to return. This, that's obviously why they lost. So I have to wear it again, which means that they're going to win this weekend. But we'll see. Hans, Borghand, Kuba, welcome in, y'all. How are you guys doing today? Wonderful. Awesome. Um, let me pull up the market here for a second before we get started. That's the stock. Where are we at? Up 2.23%. Yeah. Yeah. Some positive movements. Um, how are you guys interpreting this? Any thoughts around this? Anybody have any sort of like <clears throat> off the dome? Seems fishy. A little bit suspicious to me. How come? Well, I would expect more red uh, after how the first day uh, went. And with the speculation that Elon will be selling, it's, it's kind okay. of suspicious. Yeah, so I, I would think it's just the I, I would think it it sold off for a couple of days, and this is probably just the mini rebound. And I think we're kind of slightly off tilter with the rest of the market. We're slightly behind, so we're kind of operating slightly independently, and that's probably because earnings and and, and it, we moved the independently of the market yeah yeah i would have i mean if tesla had announced a big beat like people were expecting and we had seen eps at you know a dollar 15 a dollar 20 um i think that would have separated us from the macro a little bit more um i think coming in so close to wall street's expectations probably makes tesla just more susceptible to continuing to follow the macro over the next three months um so there's not a whole lot of surprise that I see here, honestly. Um, I think we would have needed to to see a bigger beat, really, to to get some separation. We'll kind of see over the next few months um, how how things play out as we start seeing deliveries, um, as potentially some of the institutional investors start piling in, um, depending on how FSD rollout comes in. So some of those things could be kind of near term, but yeah, I'm not seeing a whole lot of positive in the stock in the super near term. Yeah. I thought I the earnings the... call, I'm sorry. No, please go ahead. Yeah. I thought the earnings call was terrific. I thought, um, yeah, I, I, it's a dichotomy for me. On one hand, I thought the call itself was terrific. I thought Elon was exceptionally good. I thought he was really disciplined. He didn't, didn't stray. I thought it was a very upbeat uh, call. So as, as in terms of that, I thought it was excellent. And I've seen other ones like, you know, I know if you mentioned Palantir before, I've seen their calls and that is a S show. It's, <laughs> uh, it's completely undermines the stock. And so you can't, can't have that. On the flip side, in the current market, if you don't beat, do a double beat with something extra, you're down there there's no there's no exceptions so we didn't have a double beat 
We had a, a you know a slight miss on revenue and a beat on EPS, um, which is kind of interesting because that demonstrates our greater, I guess, efficiency. Because I've been listening to earnings uh, so far, and the misses usually are on the EPS side, not on the revenue side. So we're kind of the other way, which kind of suggests uh, greater efficiency. But I think we're lucky that we didn't get hammered more because we saw what happened to like Snapchat yesterday. I think that's like three times in a row. They've reported earnings and the stock's probably gone down 25% each time. So I thought the earnings was call was about as good as it could have been. And I thought the result was about what it should have been. Yeah, I think what I find interesting was that the the way Elon kicked off the call was the most bullish I've ever heard him kick off a call in a while, if not ever. Just sort of like putting, um, you know, usually uh, on a call that uh, might benefit from a little bit of like, you know, boosting or something, Elon will come out and drop one nugget, right? But then he's like, Q4 is going to be epic, $4.2 trillion market cap. The bot's going to be uh, take us beyond that. Uh, talked about FSD being done this year, Optimus being done. So there were like a lot of like very big things that were stated uh, definitively on the call. And um, then towards the end, you know, the 4.2 trill, it doesn't yeah. factor in Optimus. Bam. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. So like these are very, very big things. The one thing that I found really interesting was that um, when uh, so we had Gary black on a couple times this week and the one thing he mentioned on twitter which i found fascinating was if if elon comes out with very bullish language on the call this was before the call then it, it might uh set the stage for a potential uh sale once the blackout period opens back uh removes itself and they can start selling and buying shares again as a tesla employee um so i'm like okay wow so that was an interesting call because he he kind of called the bullish language now we'll see if elon's actually going to sell shares for the twitter deal uh starting monday because the blackout doesn't doesn't uh end until monday when i as a, as a company the it was always the monday after earnings that opened up i know i saw some uh stuff on twitter saying that hey it's open today so we're not seeing any selling from elon it's like well no nobody can sell until monday so uh we'll see what happens there uh yeah i think what was I continue to learn through this market, uh, this bear market that we're in, is that it, it's truly dominated by short term, by short term expectations from from the market. Whereas in a bull market, I think it benefits a lot more from more longer term thinking. More, hey, this is what we're where we're going to be in the next five to ten years or in the next three years. Whereas now it's like, oh, you met expectations. Well, well, I'm just going to capitalize on the run you've had. You know. It's like that's the sort of dynamic I'm seeing. I don't know if you guys are seeing that as well, but it's uh it's yet another learning lesson, you know, that that I that I've been exposed to Tesla. It's like, hey, even though they're making a ton of cash, even though they're doing extremely well, even though next year if there is a recession and legacy auto starts to fail, Tesla's gonna be in a great spot regardless and they're gonna continue to grow. <laughs> we just saw with the release of the red and the silver model Ys, they're already seven months out for the one color. I pull up the tweet here in a second, but um, yeah, it's just it's just been a fascinating thing to watch. And uh, I think next week we could have some giant fireworks because of the sell, a potential sell of Twitter if he sells more shares, uh, which I'm still not sure if he will, if he can't, you know, he should be able to raise the cash that he needs. And then theoretically, we should see the Twitter deal being closed sometime next week. I think a lot of 
a lot of um, signs are pointing towards that. And if that's the case, then we can sort of start going into the next stage of the company. Hopefully, we'll see. Yeah, I want to hear Richard's take on that because that is the one potential near-term catalyst. If the Twitter deal finally does wrap up, that does have some some possibility. And I, I completely agree. Like, I love the call. I think as a long-term investor, I'm super excited about the future of the company. Um, and they they just hit so many different items like we talked about on the call. And we can get into some of those later if we want to. Um, sure. But yeah, as far as the the Twitter deal, what do you think, Richard? What's the likelihood of that closing soon? Or are we going to drag on into November? Like, where do you see that? I, I read something, I think, yesterday, and it appeared that uh, they're working on the documentation. And I think, you know, I think the intention is to close the deal by the 28th. I think that's the intention. But I think the the holdup might be there's, and this, this is kind of like a practical holdup. You have a lot of parties that are going to be involved in uh, the preparation of documentation. That means a lot of eyes are going to look at it. And I'm thinking more of like banks and institutions that are going to have to sign off. And oftentimes they're slow. So it wouldn't shock me if they have a deal and they have to go to Judd and say, we have a deal in place. We're just now finalizing the documents. Give us some more time. Um, but it sounds like the intention certainly is to close. Um, and now I, I did read about obviously the gut, you know, the, and I, you know, I don't know how valid it is, but the rumors about the government's intention maybe to interfere in the closing of the Twitter deal or Starlink. And I see the headline you saw, and the way I read it, it was more more of an issue of Starlink. And I I, I thought the issue was when Elon at least talked about one day about removing the funding for the additional Starlink in Ukraine, the federal government rightfully or wrongfully got pissed, and uh, now they're trying to exert pressure. I would think it'd be pretty tough uh, on a substantive basis to interfere with the Twitter deal since it involves um, First Amendment issues. I think that would be a harder issue. Uh, uh, interaction by the government. Starlink, which arguably could be for national defense or security, or at least you could claim it would be, you know, arguably that could be more of a, a solid claim. But if the, and I would think the, the way the government might be able to kind of intercede is through the Defense Production Act. Maybe they, they said they need special access for the protection in NATO or, you know, something like that. But if they did that, they'd have to pay reasonable money too. So uh, Starlink would get compensated for that by the federal government. But I, but in answer to the question, I, I believe the way it sounds is the Twitter deal is going to be done, and the the 28th is the uh, at least the prospective closing date. Um, but it, but interesting for me, going back to Elon, I think it's much more valuable to for him if he can close the deal without selling Tesla stock, because I think the stock will get a much bigger bounce if he doesn't sell it. And since he has the most shares, he will be the biggest beneficiary of that bounce, probably enough to finance that entire Twitter deal. What's uh, really interesting about him having to sell shares, though, is that even if he has to sell shares, say $5 billion, worth, I think is the number that's being thrown around 5 billion. 
that's less than 1% of the company's market cap. So theoretically, even him selling the share should only move the stock by a little bit. And if it's built in conjunction with the potential buyback that uh, Elon has talked about on the call, where he said, you know, the board's reviewing how to do the buyback, but we think somewhere between the range of five to $10 billion makes sense. Whatever he sold, quote unquote, into the market, it's going to get soaked up anyway <laughs> in the next call it, six to 12 months. So in the long term, even if he has to sell shares, to me, it's like a who cares kind of thing. But if he if he doesn't have to just and he can just raise the cash to buy Twitter, then, you know, theoretically, it's better for investors and him. But it still should be a very small hit, you know. So I, I do think that the that the saga itself being around of we just want to see what happens with this damn thing and we just want to get past it, I think has a lot of validity to it the Twitter overhang, you know, I think Gary coined that term and I'm trying to get him to sell merch around that. Like, bro, like put a Twitter overhang, you know, burn on your shirt and just start selling that in mass. You'll get so much money for your fund. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's, 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 it's fascinating to watch that dynamic. So uh, I don't know if anybody else has any thoughts around that or uh, any other topics that they want to bring up. <laughs> I thought it's more a credibility issue. I think Elon's made representations. He wasn't going to sell, or at least, made suggestions. I don't know if it's anything exact, but suggestions he wasn't going to sell any more stock. So if he goes and sells stock, then it, you wonder if you can trust all his words. And the same thing I about what, what Gary was saying about, um, uh, and I think I even mentioned, because I was talking about, about what Gary had said before, but the superlatives that Elon did, which I loved, but if they were designed to pump the value of the stock, then I don't love it as much. So um, that's that's where I think. I think in terms of like the financials, it's really insignificant. And for long-term investors, it's certainly insignificant. I think that's legitimate. That's a great call. Yeah, if if he's the last thing he he needs he want he needs to do is like somehow impact um, people's trusts of his words. And so if if he does end up selling i could see a, a scenario where very much so where people are like well you said you weren't going to sell any more shares um and that could be negatively impacted and i'm sure he can you know his lawyers will be like well you still can you you know you have verbiage that says i don't i don't uh what did he say exactly he's like i don't uh foresee uh there shouldn't be any more sales or so it was like uh, there was a little bit of vagueness around it but there's still the messages out there you know mm -hmm. good on yeah, I was just going to say that Rob had made a pretty good observation in his video, I think, last night about, you know, in the past, Elon has kind of um, broadcast beforehand that he was going to do some selling by putting polls on Twitter, you know, those types of things. So it, it's kind of not in character for what he's done in the past for him to basically do a pump and dump type action here with the stock. Um so hopefully we don't see him do something like that. I think it would be a really bad look for him right now, and especially with all the scrutiny that he's under. Um, I hope that he doesn't have to do that. Um, or I hope he doesn't have to sell. And if he does have to sell, I think he should definitely be forthright about saying that beforehand and not coming to market and having a surprise sale if possible. I think that would be just the best case overall for everyone like, you know, this is going to be a hit for our stockholders. I'm willing to take the hit as I sell. Um, I'm not going to try and do better in the market 
than my shareholders are going to be doing. Um, so hopefully, if he does have to sell, he can he can do that. Um, we'll see what happens. But yeah, it's a really bad look if he says, "Hey, like this is the best time that I've seen in a long time as far as the valuation of the company moving forward." Um, and oh, by the way, I'm going to have to sell a bunch of shares. Like I understand the reasoning behind needing to sell for Twitter, and I fully support him. But just as far as the optics go, it wouldn't look good. That's very fair. And his, um, and his, and his naysayers, basically his naysayers, that's their position. He's a bullshitter, right? And so this would kind of like support that uh, story. So I, I just don't think it's helpful. And I'm sure he knows that too. You know, he's obviously, he's a lot smarter than all of us put together. So he knows that and I'm sure he's trying. And I know he's contacted his boys and some of them said yes and some of them some of them said no but um you know he's a very resourceful guy so as far as if you were going to predict what happens next week i'm curious to hear y'all's take what what do you think happens do you what's the probable like what's the probability that the twitter deal closes one and then what's the probability that elon has to sell shares too um i'll just kind of go first and maybe we can wrap up the topic with this um I think there is like an 80% chance it gets closed next week. And I think there's a 20% chance it sells because I think he's going to be able to raise the cash, whatever cash is needed to be able to complete the sale. That's how I think about it. What do you guys think? I would say like 50% chance that it closes next week. I just don't know that, like, I think it's on the path. Um, I just don't know about timeline that it can move that quickly. Uh, and then as far as chance that he has to sell, yeah, I think... I might put that as 50-50 as well. I think he's got a really good shot of bringing in enough outside capital to where he doesn't have to sell anything. And, you know, that is definitely the most ideal situation for everyone involved, like we talked about. Yeah, I've, I've seen a segment on CNBC where they were discussing that uh, uh, Elon's people are asking left and right for, for capital. So I think they'll be, they'll be successful, hopefully. Uh, so I don't don't really expect to sell and uh yeah i don't think it will close next week so probably what will have to happen is another delay to the trial i guess if the if i don't know richard if, does that make sense if both parties say that they are in the finalization stage of the of the paperwork will the judge be willing to postpone yeah if they say they have a deal and they're just finalizing the paperwork the judge would much rather that than having to try the case so Generally, the, they will. Generally, being ninety-nine percent of the time, they will say they say fine. And that's what I was going to say. So I would expect a deal to be announced by the end of next week. I don't know if it'll be finalized, but it'll be announced. And I'm also going to say that Elon will contribute no more than one billion dollars in stock. So he thinks you think eighty percent of it will be covered with uh, outside money. Yeah, I was I because I saw like three the three guys, you know, I thought that might, you know, do you read that like uh, from uh, his PayPal gentleman, Reed Hoffman, Peter Thiel, they are not going to participate. And I saw Ken Griffin from Citadel. He is, but it wasn't a big, it was only 20, I think 20 million dollars. 20 million, yeah. yeah. For me, that's a nice chunk of change for, for today. But uh, for, those <laughs> guys, for those guys, you know, that's a, that's like, you know tip money jump change yeah 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 so so i think you know 
you know, he said they're it's it's over they're overpaying. So it's got to be a friend, not a uh, super an investor like an institutional investor would probably have a tough time if the if the guy who's asking for money says I'm asking for more than it's worth. But a private person might be able to do it. So, you know, that's where he's going to find the additional money. And I wouldn't be surprised if he ends up just short a little bit. Fair enough. I saw a couple uh, folks in the comments. I don't know if anybody else wants to drop their predictions, but we have the great Alexander Mertz, Tessa Boomer Mama. 90% closed, 10% needs to sell. We had another uh, prediction here from um, Dr. One Lynch too, I guess. 90% deal closed, 30% needs to sell share. So it seems like at least the folks that are sharing their ideas, it looks like, uh, at least in the comments, we have folks that think this thing gets done tomorrow. So, which means that it won't, <laughs> or next week rather. <laughs> you know what? I know how it goes. <laughs> By the way, that's that's lawyer talk. When they somebody will come in and ask you, "How do you think this is going to turn out?" And you know, there's no way of ever really knowing. So of course. You, so, if if it's a good case, you might say, you know, I'd say it's about a 64% chance that you prevail. 36 against and the flip side just like that there's a 30 percent chance of uh something you know yeah yeah hope i make you proud uh who wants to kick us out with the uh next topic here uh, i know hans borgen or uh richard you guys had some stuff in mind kuba um what, what well, i have a quick think? one I, yeah. uh, I wanted to brag that i'm in europe and i'll be able to buy the with the new colors the model y well <laughs> screw but you then, but that? then <laughs> the joke's on me because I didn't know that there's already a waitlist. So I, while we were talking, I just quickly updated my reservation from blue to, to red so that I don't end up getting it in 24. <laughs> Let me go ahead and pull that up, actually. Uh, yeah, this was announced, I believe, this morning or last night? I can't remember what, when it came out. Uh, I think it was this morning. Uh, actually, Both of them night. actually look sick, but I went yeah. for red for now. They look really nice. Um, Quicksilver, 3,000 euro, about 3,000 USD. Midnight Cherry, 3,200. This is what the silver looks like. That, for me, for me. Looks like stainless steel. This is the best color I think they've ever come out with for me. It's so nice. I love silver on cars so much. It just really highlights like the curves and the lines real well. But this red also looks like it's like a deep sort of crimson almost looking thing. Um, it's sick, super, super sick. Uh, and I saw, um, what does that, so if you go on the website, Kuba, I don't know if you could do this live, but what's the wait time on the red and what's the wait time on the silver right now in your location? You're in Poland, uh, right? Yeah, that's... Yeah, and so while he does it that... He um, didn't tell me while, when I updated the reservation, but let's see okay. if I were to order a new one. But yeah, in the meantime, you can kick off another topic and I'll yeah. jump in. Okay. Richard or Hans, what do you guys yeah, think? Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll jump. Uh, yeah, so one thing I didn't like about the the uh, call, earnings call, was the switch from deliveries to production, the, using that as the parameter. And I know it's not a it's not a big deal, but again, it's a little bit of slippage. So we went from 50% agreeing to or uh, averaging 50% increase in deliveries to now 50 percent increase in production and you know um it may not be meaningful you know if we're talking about 48 percent versus 50 but if it's you know 40 percent deliveries and 50 percent 
productions that is meaningful and that will ultimately ding ding the stock and that, and i that was what, what i was going to ask you or at least gonna, it was going to mention um that's what kind of makes tesla different is the way it's kind of valued and the way it's treated is it's even though it has cash makes money it's still treated as a kind of a, a, a company that doesn't make money so a lot of its values based on its future cash flows and kind of ignoring its current cash flows. And um, I presume that at some point in time, that'll change. When there's so much money in the coffers, they'll have to just kind of value it based on it, you know, its current cash flow. And then on top of that, the future future cash flow. But that makes it makes it a little more difficult for, for us to get a, a fair valuation and to get fair treatment. Yeah, the I I brought that up yesterday uh, with Alexandra and Gary. So my my thing was okay. So in a world where Tesla continues to create the separation versus the competition, and they are generating a ton of cash, they're becoming a quote unquote in my head. Maybe I'm misinterpreting this a value stock or a company that is no longer should be treated as a growth stock. It should be treated as something that's in my head. Value is like consistent cash flows, consistent ability to generate uh, cash and bring returns to investors, solid uh, business that is going to be able to withstand a lot of different headwinds and weird market conditions, you know, like our Coca-Cola and Tesla that different really outside of like, obviously when it comes to like the, the, how solid the business is in my head, it's yes. And maybe that's just me being naive about how strong of a business Tesla is. But what, what was interesting to start putting in perspective is that there's really three categories here that, that appear to exist in the market, at least. And I, and I would love to sort of throw this around too. There seems to be actually maybe four. So the first one is like speculative. No one really knows if they're going to be successful, but it has a ton of potential. So think of, you know, this is maybe Tesla back in 2013, 2014, call it, or Snapchat. I don't know. Pick, pick something or Twitter. I don't know. Pick, pick a company that's uh, theoretically can be ultra high growth, but doesn't have consistent profits of any, but it's a, has, it's a very promising technology. Then you have a growth company. A growth company is a, company that is uh, growing really, really quickly, is not generating a lot of cash, some things, some headwinds could uh, deteriorate its ability to continue forward. But it's it's like a upgraded uh, speculative stock. It's a growth company. Then you have value stocks, which are like your Coca Cola's and your Berkshire Hathaway's these companies that people that are looking to retain their wealth at the highest uh, likelihood possible float to because these are companies that under basically any circumstance should survive any moment but at the same time they're extremely predictable they're not really innovating they're just in things that people will always value and these things might grow five percent per year at a maximum maybe you know six if you're lucky and then what i'm starting to realize is that then there's another category which is like your fang that's not really value but these are like these are uh almost like I don't even know how to label them, but they're they're in innovative companies and technology companies that are not really valued by by value investors, but also don't fit the growth sort of narrative. So you're the, the fang stocks of Apple, Google, Facebook, Amazon, like these types of companies. And it seems like Tesla has is graduating from the growth thing 
to that category, that whatever you want to call that bucket. And in my head, that bucket of Fang was also theoretically value because it just seems so entrenched. Like Apple is not going away. Apple's not going away, but I guess there's investors out there that view Apple differently than a Berkshire Hathaway or something else. So I don't know if it, I don't know if that makes any sense or if it's something that's uh, valuable to talk about. But I'm I'm really starting to think about that a lot more, and I'm like, okay, so when Tesla fully graduates from growth to call it this Fang category, what does that mean? Are we there yet? You know, what kind of investor base is gonna move to that stock based on that label? Um, I'll open it up. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts around there, if you want to add on or remove or move it to a different one, but I don't know. Yeah. I'll, I'll sort of hand the mic over to somebody else. Yeah. I mean, I think that, so and even with, among the Fang stocks, like they're better and worse. So you've got Microsoft isn't part of the Fang, but really like in my mind, the three preeminent, we can call them maybe apex tech stocks that are, you know, consistent growth, but super resilient, um, great growth prospects, and just durable businesses and teams that you can expect to execute regardless of the headwinds that they encounter. And that's, yeah, Apple, Google, Microsoft. Like, those are the three. Netflix is good, probably, I would say, better than um, Facebook. And then, yeah, Facebook is kind of falling off. Honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if we saw Microsoft replace Netflix or sorry, um, replace Facebook man, the thing. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, so I think as Tesla graduates to that level, you know, we haven't seen Berkshire Hathaway invest a whole lot in anything there besides Apple, <clears throat> but you could see moving forward that potentially they would be warming up to some of those other names. And that as you see more of that, more value money begin to flow more into these apex tech stocks, that that could change the sentiment in the market. And, um, you know, I think that Tesla is in a very unique position with respect to those other three, because they're both a physical stuff company and a digital stuff company. And so, you know, their atoms and bits mix is much more evenly split than any of the others, which kind of makes some of their um, their revenue a lot more durable than some of the other companies. And so that's the thing, you know, as far as being able to generate high margin revenue on such large physical products is pretty incredible. Um, and as they continue to ramp up both vehicle production and then get into energy, expand into new verticals, expand into new markets. Um, you know, I think that the market at some point, if we get into another bull rally where uh, you do see the market starting to assign value to some of these further time horizon type things, that you could really see Tesla go on a major run. I wanted to thank you, Farzad, for putting my account on the screen. Yeah, you're welcome. Yeah, this is no actually uh, this is Berkshire Hathaway's holdings. Just uh, as Hans was talking through it, um, Apple is Berkshire Hathaway's largest holding at forty percent of their portfolio, a hundred and thirty-two billion dollars. Um, the Berkshire Hathaway fund is three hundred twenty-five billion. 
but what's interesting about like so and i do i do also i do mention so alexander mertz tessa boomer mama who was on the comments before she's actually writing a letter to buffett i think there's a couple of people writing letters to buffett saying hey yeah what, what are you waiting for start buying tesla <laughs> like this fits your portfolio perfectly starting to transition over sort of piggybacking on what hans is saying so what's interesting is like as i start going down the list i'm like okay activision blizzard is part of the fund they have about five billion dollars worth of that then they also have um general motors which is an interesting to hold at this time at this time um they have amazon which theoretically could fit the same bill as tesla uh, they have snowflake which is a very interesting play i'm assuming they have this because they want some um exposure to uh potential like you know 10x opportunities on the road t-mobile so it's like it's 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 fascinating to watch how fun like a berkshire hathaway purchases stock but what really stands out to me is like, okay, Apple's 40% of their portfolio, you know, what's the likelihood that is, as Tesla becomes, starts fitting this sort of mold of sort of like, think about Apple. So what's, what's the general public think about Apple? Innovative, cool products, um, well, innovative is questionable, but I think the public thinks of Apple's innovative because of Steve Jobs, really cool products, good growth, makes a ton of cash. It's cool. It's part of the tech sort of industry. At what point does Tesla start fitting that bill and it starts attracting funds like Berkshire Hathaway, especially now with investment grade, where maybe they start uh, willing down Apple a little bit. And maybe they take 2% and throw it into Tesla or take 3% and throw it into Tesla. You know, 1% of, of the fund is 3 billion bucks. If Berkshire Hathaway buys 3 billion bucks of Tesla, that to me seems like a significant significant buy from a fund, especially if they get to a point where they have to report. I think they have to pass a threshold of 5% before they have to re they have to like file the form with the SEC that says, hey, I, ha I have this many shares. Um, yeah, it, it's, it's a fascinating thing to follow and, and think through. And I think this becomes a more and more obvious trend in the coming years, especially as those buybacks begin and Moody's upgrades and cash flow becomes not just a no-brainer, but just overwhelming that this sort of dynamic starts to appear where these larger well-known funds start buying into tesla and it becomes part of the zeitgeist somewhat um, what do you guys think about that i was going to say i think yeah. tesla, tesla is still growing too much so it ha which is great but it has a lot more volatility than apple bank of america chevron coca-cola and somebody like warren buffet as i call him um He's not looking for volatility. He wants to park his money, not worry about it, get a, a you know a return that he's anticipating. The the Activision uh, one that you mentioned, I think that was a, a merger uh, by Microsoft. I think Microsoft was going to acquire them. I think that's still in process, and they thought that was an arbitrage. That's why they have it. Um, but I think. The Apples and I think Hans was saying this. Yeah, the three, the Apple, Google, Microsoft, people feel those are like banks. You could park your money there and they're going to be safe. Um, hopefully they'll go up and appreciate a significant amount, but you don't have to really worry about it. And you can't, good or bad, you can't say that about Tesla. Tesla's got a lot more excitement, a lot more upside, but it's in a kind of a cyclical business. So it could go up 300% one year and go down 500% the next year. And for those kind of conservative uh, institutions, they have some reluctance, notwithstanding the upside.
Yeah, I 100% agree with Richard on that, that I don't expect to see, you know, I think five years down the road, like this could be a different conversation. I don't expect to see Warren Buffett put Ascent into Tesla anytime in the near future um, for all the same reasons that Richard just mentioned. Uh, Although, you know, I think it would make sense for him to, I think it'd be a perfect fit in the portfolio. Like if you have such a large portion of your fund that is dependent on insurance revenue, and then you do have some allocated to GM. um, So you've got some exposure to automotive, like you should at least hedge that with Tesla, but there, you know, that's not the way that they think and that's not what they're going to do. Yeah. Um, any other topics? What are you guys thinking? Hans, I know you, uh, you had a list. Is there something you want to hit? Um, so yeah, I mean, why don't we move to the, uh, third generation platform and the, uh, 50% reduction in cost. So did I, did I hear right on the conference call? I think ASPs were basically 52,000. Yeah, 54. Somewhere between 52 and 54. 54. Okay. So let me yeah. let me run the numbers and we'll I know that this is not this is just some rough math real quick. Um this is not just 3 and Y. Um but we'll uh we'll use it anyways and it'll be conservative. So 54. Do you have something you want to share on your on your screen or you just want to spitball? Um no, I'm yeah, I'm just putting it into a okay. calculator, so Go for easy. It. So Drew also said that if you backed out the impact of Austin and Berlin ramp that they basically achieved 30% automotive gross margins X credits, which is huge. So 54,000 times 0.7. If I could type that would help. We're doing some live math, y'all. Yep. Is $37,800. So that's like their average cost of goods sold. So if you divide that by two, you're looking at an average COGS for the generation three at under $19,000. Yep. Um, Which should mean that they can sell at 30% margin, they could sell a $27,000 car at 30% margin on a, on a COGS of 19 K. So that's pretty crazy. Um, you know, the, we know that the demand for vehicles grows exponentially as you reduce the price. So going from, you know, a $50,000 car down to a $27,000, car probably you know at least quadruples the size of the market if not more like eight times um and so just an insane level of production that they would be able to sell out in that and then we're not even talking about robo taxis so yeah I, i just thought that that was a huge announcement so you know we don't have details on exactly what that platform looks like um, but just as far as back of the napkin math to spitball, um, saying that you can get your average cost of goods sold for an economy vehicle down below $20,000 is incredible. 
Yeah, I agree. Go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I was going to say, so I, and I have no facts supporting this. This is, again, pure speculation, which I like to do. Um, uh, I When I thought about that, I thought about India. And I thought about the market in India. Uh, part of the problem with Teslas in India is they're too expensive for the population. So it's hard to sell a car to the population in India. But obviously, there's a huge market. And, they, and obviously, India would like Tesla to set up a manufacturing facility in there. And I thought, if you could do the new platform where you could sell $30,000 cars in India and supply the marketplace there, build a factory, they'd waive the tax. I guess the issue was the tax. Uh, if you built the factory, you could get them to waive the tax. You could sell literally millions of those in India and produce them for the rest of the world at a ridiculously you know, uh, cheap labor cost and not be as reliant on China. I think the so what I'm doing right now is I'm putting the um, the numbers in Excel spreadsheet, I think, right now, because there's a whole topic of discussion we can do around this um, 30,000 or really sub $30,000 car. There's just so many implications here. So real quick, for those that just joined, um, the average ASP for the current lineup for and Hans walked us through, I just want to put it on 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 uh, on screen here so we can see it all together. The average selling price today for Tesla is roughly $54,300. Uh, the statement was made on the call that Zach said, if you remove Berlin and Austin, the current margin that Tesla makes on those cars is roughly 30%, which implies that the cost of a good sold or how much it costs Tesla to make the car is 38,010 bucks roughly. Then if you take Elon and Tesla for the word and they think that they can do a compact car for half the cost of that car. So compact car cogs, it's just that divided by two, right? Or times 0.5, if you wanna be weird like me, it's 19,000 bucks to make the car. And then if you wanna make 30% margin, then you take this, right? And you divide it by 0.7, whoops. Did you know you can't do divided by point multiply? Did you know that was a thing? My God. It's a $27,000 car. So if they make 30% margin, but here's what's even crazier to me, is say Tesla can't make 30% margin on that car. They can only make 20% margin because of competition or whatever. This price just goes down. <laughs> like, I th and I think that's what, that's what might be even like, a lot of people are missing is this is with the assumption that they're going to make 30% car on a compact car. And then people will say, well, there's no way that Tesla is going to be able to make 30% on a, on a smaller car because it's never been done before. Just like, you know, we've, how many times have we heard this course of it's never been done before? Okay, cool. Let's say they make it for 20, for 20% 20 margin, right? Divided by 0 0.8. It's a $23,000 car, right? When is the last time yeah, you've been that, able to buy a brand new car for twenty three thousand? And it'll be a for sick twenty three thousand dollar car. Exactly, like, it will blow away the rest of the competition at that price point. And this is the whole yeah. zombie stock argument: is that no, when they finally sell that car, they're going to make five percent margin. And, Impossible. You know that's just not realistic. It's going to be so. So this you know goes back to what Dave Lee says: that's such a great mental framework to keep in mind that when you're entering 
the marketplace with a new product. You need it to be 10 times better than the existing competition in order for you to be able to meaningfully disrupt that market. And Tesla has done that. Like, that's why these cars kill categories is because the Model 3 really was pretty close to 10 times as good as that equivalent BMW. Um, and so when Tesla comes in and they introduce their third generation vehicle, it will do that to that entire vehicle segment. And they'll have something, you know, that gives you pricing power. It gives you the ability to have margin um, that other people don't have. It's not a commoditized, you know, people are thinking about the automotive market in terms of the very commoditized, highly competitive place that we've been going to. They don't realize that this is much more like going from horse and buggy to cars. And so the types of margins and vertical integration that are necessary are going to be a lot more. And then market share is going to be a lot more like Ford circa 1930 than GM circa 1980. Yeah. And the, and the volumes are going to be crazy. So, you know, you could have lower margins if your volumes go off the charts, you know, you know, uh, and I was going to say, this doesn't include FSD, right? So, this is down the road. So we're going to be, hopefully we will be at a better state and maybe on this with the lower end price, maybe you're doing more a subscription month, monthly service. Maybe that fits the budget better. And, uh, but that's just, you know, pure profit on top. Yeah. How do you guys think about, sorry, go ahead, Kuba. Uh, yeah. I wanted to say that, uh, why keep margins so low if you don't have any competition, why not 40%? For example, because there's no way anybody else would be able to produce a comparable car at this price point. They'll manage that the same way that they've been managing it. It'll be according to wait times. And so if they can produce enough to keep the backlog low, then they'll bring the price down because Elon, Elon would like to make electric cars as affordably as possible as long as the company is in a healthy financial position. Um, so I think that he would love to be able to sell at only 30% margins, if at all possible. But if they can't satisfy demand, which I highly doubt that they'll be able to, you will see higher margins. They'll go up to 35, 40%. And they'll do that solely to keep people from having to wait two years to take delivery of a vehicle. Yeah. I also the, uh... think... I also think that he's sensitive, that Elon's sensitive to his own wealth and that he doesn't want to be perceived as being a whore, you know, that he has to make every dollar. Uh, I really think that's a, that's a concern of his. And he's almost embarrassed at times about his money because he doesn't live like some guy who really enjoys his money. You know, it's there, but I really think that he doesn't like that, that view of him. So. I think he'd be even if he was able to make that, and I think he would be able to, but I think he just wouldn't do it. Yeah, I think um, so. The, the reason why I brought this up is because I want to see how much a cheap EV costs right now. So we're talking about the compact car for those that just joined. I'm seeing some, a few folks joining in. Thank you all very much. By the way, thank you so much for joining our stream. My God, I, it's taken almost an hour for me to thank everybody for being on. Thank you for being on. Mwah. Love you. Um, 
Also, don't talk shit in the comments about the panel because I'll block you and I blocked somebody already for that. So watch what you say. Just letting you know. I got my 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 people's backs. Um, you can criticize, just don't be a jerk about it. You'll get blocked. Um, the with we're estimating Tesla's compact car to cost uh, to the consumer somewhere around twenty seven thousand dollars. Okay, uh, with a calculation that we did where we think the cost for that car is going to be about nineteen thousand, which extrapolates out to a twenty seven thousand dollar price to the buyer at 30% margin, 20% margin, 23,000, you can kind of go down the, uh, the sort of price point if Tesla's going to make less margin on that. I brought up a competitor, quote unquote, uh, sorry, <laughs> I have to do that every time. Um, the bolt right now, the, the cheapest trim for what I can find about 259 miles is, uh, lo and behold, about $27,000. But the interesting thing about the $27,000 is that this car for GM at the very best is zero percent margin at the very best uh this is a loss leader as they call it in uh, a lot of different places um and they have an upper trim for twenty nine thousand. they'll probably make a few percentage points of margin there um so to put it within the context tesla theoretically if they wanted to sell a car that was cheap that would compete with something like this they and they want to frame it around the same sort of financial impact to the company as a bolt does right now for GM, they can go down to $19,000 if they want to make 0% margin and use that as a loss leader and then allow full self-driving or whatever else to drive the margin. And I think that's where that's that's being missed. And I'm having a the tough time sort of seeing if this includes, it says MSRP less incentives, but I don't know if that's the um, tax credit. That's I don't think, I think GM is no longer, um, I think, capable of getting the incentive for uh, cars anymore, but let's just assume this is the, ba the base model. I'm going to start looking for other vehicles around this price range, but this is an important point. This is a very, very important point. I feel if Tesla wanted to make a car that was 0% margin, like this one at the base model of 27,000, they can just sell it for 19 and you've already done one step below that. The gap between a $19,000 car and a $27,000 car dollar car is huge. <laughs> it's gigantic. Um, anyway, not, not sure if you guys have any thoughts around that, but I'm going to, I'm going to go search for more affordable cars because there's well, and a lot don't to forget, talk about around this topic. Yeah. Don't forget that these ice manufacturers can actually sell it at negative gross margin and still end up making money as long as they don't have to pay more. Cause these are offsetting zero emission vehicle credits that they would have to buy. And so it reduces their tax liability so they can potentially make you know negative five hundred dollars negative a thousand dollars and if that's less than the zev credit that they would have to buy to offset that vehicle then they can still do that and justify it financially and so you know that makes it even more uh like just puts a finer point on it anybody else any thoughts silence i love it uh, about the car in, around this price range so in europe we've got the zoe i don't know zoe in around this this price but you won't find it in the is States. that a renault yeah renault 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 zoe we saw you know what i that's what i rented when i was in ireland i was running around the zoe i think it was a zoe um renault zoe built 
see if I can villagers uh, Zoe E Tech. Is that the one? That, I guess that's the electric Zoe. There's a, there, it's only electric. It's no other variant. Got it. So the techno is thirty thousand euro or uh, pounds, which is roughly I think the pound and the euro or, or the U.S. dollar are one to one now, right? I believe or close to. Pound is um, still a bit stronger, yeah. A bit stronger. So yeah. more than thirty thousand U.S. Mm -hmm. Cool. So that there's another. Inc so it includes VAT in Europe, though. So you know that's a bit different. Oh, it includes VAT. Okay. And what's VAT? Twenty five percent. Depends on the country, but yeah, between 15 and 25. Okay. So this would be probably closer to 25,000, I guess. Mm -hmm. Yeah, more Something or less. Like okay. So right around that price range, but you get 239 miles of WLTP range, which is European, which I believe is inflated by about 10% versus US range, something like that. So it's 200 miles. Um, okay. Yeah. But is Renault making any money on this right now at, at the base level? Probably not. Right. Um, yeah, it's crazy. The implications from this thing is nuts. Go ahead, Richard. Seems like you could do unlimited fleet sales too. rental car companies, oh. uh, you know, all leasing companies. You could do like, you know, because it's absolute profit to all to everybody down downstream, too. And you could sell yeah. with your your market would be astronomical. Yeah. And we're not even talking about the IRA on this freaking cheaper car either. <laughs> That's the wild thing. Is a $7,500 on a $27,000 car, potentially. Um, do you guys yeah, think... on the IRA, I don't know if you caught that as well, because the IRA includes the $45 tax break when you do the sales and put them in the packs. And they said that mm -hmm. uh, they're soon going to be at $70. So the battery will actually cost them $25 per kilowatt. That's insane. Hour. Yeah. It's completely nuts. It's completely nuts. It's like I'm almost scared to even think about it because the implications are so giant. You know, it's 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 a thing we've always been talking about in the community is like the scale is going to kick in, the scale is going to kick in. And now we're on the precipice of the scale kicking in. And then is Tesla going to be the only car that's going to be able to sell a sub $30,000 car at, at, at a profit? I think so. I think they're going to be the only ones. It's going to be like uh, it's going to be like an Apple versus Android thing all over again. Like it's it's just, it's so obviously playing out that way in my opinion, where Apple has, you know, what is it, twenty percent of the market share, ten percent of the market share, but like ninety percent of the profits. Um, Tesla could have thirty percent of the market share and hundred percent of the profits. <laughs> you know, that's where it gets weird. How do you guys think about RoboTaxi and the? Actually, uh, go ahead, Richard. I saw you went off. Yeah, yeah I was going to say we, but we have to be uh, kind of patient enough to weather the times where the business and the stock are unhinged, because that's tough. Uh, you know, we all believe the business is fantastic, but the stock isn't always as fantastic, and it's uh, tough, notwithstanding the you know how well the business is doing, to always weather the crappy stock times. Yeah. That's a great point. How do you guys think about RoboTaxi and this sort of like more affordable car? I know, I think they talked about it being on the same platform, but is it the same product or how do you envision that? Have you guys thought about that at all? Yeah, I've definitely thought about it. Um, I, I, it's almost inconceivable to expect that they won't have 
something on this platform that doesn't have a steering wheel and pedals and is specifically made just to carry around people. Um, but I think there will also be, as we've said, you know, lots of markets where that won't be feasible and they still need EVs in order to transition to sustainable energy. And so we'll see both. Um, there'll be traditional compact cars. Um, I'm excited to see, yeah, what is the China version of this vehicle look like? What is the Berlin design vehicle look like? Because those will probably be similar, probably built on um, at least some similar chassis and uh, structural elements um, with some minor differences. And yeah, then what does that look like for everything else? And then, you know, do we get that cyber van also as that last segment that we don't have currently um so we don't really have compact cars and we don't have vans those are kind of the two major vehicles that are left out in the cold still i was out trying to steal the intellectual property last night but was unsuccessful so i can't report but i i agree with hans i think you know they're they're going to probably improve on existing not create from scratch because that seems kind of be the mo so I would think they would take the existing platform and simplify it and improve it, maybe reduce the size, something like that. But I would I would expect it to be very similar, but probably less parts, because that seems to be the the way to go, and just a, a a simpler and cleaner version of the existing, not some altered technology. So I guess to go on record with some concrete predictions, I expect a single piece casting for the entire underbody. Um, and then I also expect that we will see both stainless steel and then traditional exterior options available in a variety of different products. Um, yeah, it'll operate primarily on LFP batteries uh, the range will be pretty incredible because the vehicle will be so light and uh, those batteries will be structural, obviously. Um, and yeah, we'll just see uh, probably incredible software integration on top of that from FSD, but even beyond to entertainment and other options, um, which kind of leads into another topic if we wanted to touch on it here in a little bit. And that's, you know, we've been hearing these rumors of Google and Tesla in talks. And so I've been thinking a lot about, you know, what are the potential topics that Google and Tesla would want to collaborate on? And, and there's quite a few interesting options. Can't wait to hear those. Richard, did you have something to say? I saw you went off, off mute or Kuba. I think it was Kuba that went off mute there. Uh, yeah, I had a bit of a counterpoint uh, because I'm not sure what, how, how big the incentive would be to complicate the lineup. And that's something that Tesla specifically didn't do for some reason. Well, for, for a clear reason, just to, to stay focused and streamlined. So the question is, what has changed in the in, in the reasoning if they were to you now have multiple uh, competing even uh, setups for, for a given uh, segment? The main difference in my mind is that a robo taxi is a completely different vehicle than a regular car that a consumer would buy to actually drive. So something that drives itself versus something that a person drives are two different vehicles. And you'll actually see two different form factors for those vehicles evolve over time. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, uh, Way Waymo, Waymo is Google, correct? Yeah, so uh, I guess Waymo is now going into, I'm, I'm very close to LA, is now coming into Los Angeles to have that as a new test city or whatever. So, so if, if, if uh, Tesla and Google got together, then it, it would be difficult for them to do a deal where they're also competing with the technology, Waymo and Tesla's technology. Be, I don't know what their common purpose would be other than that. That to me seems like they have something in common. They're both trying to develop the technology. Maybe Waymo going to LA relates to some future relationship between Tesla and Google and combining forces or something like that. Again, pure speculation. Is that where your head was going, Hans, with Google and Tesla? becoming partner yeah, there, there's quite a few options um so obviously there's you know that waymo connection and they're both working on full self-driving type autonomous driving software and vehicles but yeah both software and hardware um but if you step back from there for a second just think about the amount of map data that teslas are generating with their eight cameras that are currently constantly surveilling every major city around definitely the United States and then most major cities around the world. Um, that could be a huge potential source of data that Google might like to have access to to update their maps. You know, potentially they could actually get that data from Tesla for cheaper than they're currently hiring drivers to drive around with these cameras to create all that map data. Um, so that's one one thing that Tesla has that they'll want you know both that and then traffic um road hazards those types of things uh the, there's more interesting possibilities for dojo we know that google is not afraid to spend quite a bit of money um to do custom both hardware and software to reduce their reliance on nvidia for gpus um so they've done that with their tpus will be it, it you could definitely imagine them wanting to participate with Tesla on Dojo to see if they can add a, another option that it sounds from my understanding, listening to James Dalma, that the architecture for TPUs and the architecture for Dojo are drastically different and they'll be good at different things. And so it could very well be possible that even though that, that Google can continue to pursue developing their TPUs and still also be interested in collaborating with Tesla on the development of Dojo. You know, there's still a huge lift in the amount of libraries that are necessary to write for Dojo in order for um, it to be a useful training tool and that people can go run all sorts of different types of neural networks on easily. Um, and then also the compilers, there's sounds like there's still work to do on that front. Um, and so you know, maybe Google is interested in assisting with writing all that software in order to help Tesla move the ball forward on that and then have access to Dojo in the future. Um, like Richard mentioned, there's the FSD. Maybe they're saying, hey, we want to uh, we want to hedge our bets on Waymo. It doesn't seem like it's making as much progress as we'd like. And so 
you know, potentially there's some integrations that are possible with Tesla there. Um, and then beyond that, uh, beyond the actual software running it, maybe they just need access to Tesla's data because on actual real world driving scenarios, we've talked about this in the community ad nauseum that who else can actually create a self-driving car besides Tesla because no one else has the amount of real world data. And so you may even be able to see Tesla be like, Google could be the first one who's interested enough. You know, they're definitely the company that is in the right position to recognize the value of Tesla's data. And maybe they're the first one who's willing to cut a deal to have access to it so that they can do their own from scratch FSD type system that's trained um, without having to go and build up the fleet so that they can collect that data themselves. So, you know, those are, those are just a few of the options that, those are things that Tesla has that Google might want. And then on the flip side, you know, I think Google has a few things that Tesla might be interested in as well. So the quality of Google Assistant is, you know, top notch. It's far superior to Alexa, um, Siri, or even uh, what's the what's the Microsoft one, Cortana. Um, and right now, Tesla's voice assistant isn't great. And so you could see something potentially uh, that Tesla would be interested in there. Um, and then, yeah, their, their software experience, uh, their ability to, like I mentioned earlier, potentially collaborate on writing libraries for Dojo. Um, and then, yeah, just the amount of data that they have that potentially could play into Optimus or a variety of other things. I have one more to add where possible co mm -hmm. cooperation would be interesting. Um, so Google is uh, offering Android Automotive to OEMs and it's like an operating system for the car. It's not just infotainment, but as, I, as far as I understand, it's very tightly integrated with the whole electronics of the car. So they already have partnerships with Polestar and Volvo and Renault as well. Uh, and if if uh, Tesla was to license FSD, it might be the route how they get to to some of the OEMs that already use Android Automotive. Don't you think that Google, if they really wanted to just get full self-driving up to speed with, say, Tesla, why wouldn't they just license from Tesla? How do you think about that? Instead of just getting the data and doing it from scratch? Mm -hmm. Well, they may not think it's yeah. going to work. They may not think it's going to work. I think it's definitely in the realm of possibilities. Okay. Richard, you went off mute earlier there. Did you have uh, something to add? Uh, yeah, I was just going to say, I was you know, thinking, obviously, uh, I think Google also is involved in AR, you know, AR and VR. And we know Tesla has interest in that. So maybe there's future some future collaboration in that. They're involved in machine learning, AI, robotics. So they're probably like, a lot of projects that they actually have common interest and could work together. Sorry, I just need to send a, my dog keeps barking downstairs and I'm not really sure what's going on. <laughs> so I think, uh, I think my wife might be uh, playing Overwatch a little too loudly. Um, I think, um, <laughs> by the way, I haven't played Overwatch, but apparently it's, it's a great, it's a great game. Uh, I think 
what what's interesting to me is the Google conversation. I I I would buy that there's going to be a partnership there. Maybe like five, ten years ago, if Tesla existed five or ten years ago, like in conjunction with Google. But for me, it's like okay, it doesn't seem like Google has the same level of the innovation gene that they had earlier on. They've become, in my opinion, much more steady state. You know, they have insanely good products. I'm not going to say they don't have insanely good products, but to me, it feels like if they're really going to leverage some of the uh, data that Tesla can offer, it's not going to be, I don't know, it just doesn't feel like to me it's going to have the same impact as it necessarily should because of that lack of that innovation and that fire that's required to get something done from scratch in that manner. I think the pool of those companies is really, really small in my opinion. And I don't think Google fits that bill anymore. Um, I don't know if, I don't know if you agree with that or not, but I think, I don't know. I just, I just, that's why I don't see the partnership. I just think they're the DNAs of the two companies are very different. I don't think Google is, is nearly as innovative or as willing to take those quote unquote risks as they would in the past. Possibly not fast moving either. So that would be a source of uh, disagreement when, if they were to cooperate together because Elon would see them as moving way too slow. That's because, yeah, because they're definitely a big company. I don't think they managed to keep the culture as well as Tesla did while growing. Also, if they had too material a contract, the government, depending on who it was, would say it was anti competitive and would try to block that uh, combination. So it's kind of like a dance. It can't be too material and has to be probably the right administration to support that. How would you think about that with relation to FSD specific, like if Google wanted to license FSD and include it as part of their Android auto offering, would the government view that as anti-competitive or facilitating competition i guess it might depend on the terms of the deal huh yeah if there was one if they were if they eventually were going to eliminate it just to one source that would be anti-competitive if they were going to make it more more internal competition then that would make it competitive so in essence you'd have to run them both i think you couldn't like, shut down waymo and operate Tesla and then have that as the exclusive way. Well, you could do it, but I would think you're going to get pushback from the government if you have uh, sole pricing control and you have control over the entire market. Yeah, I think I think the the picture for FS like that full self-driving future is still murky until I think until maybe next year or the year after. And then we'll start getting some clear signals into what sort of dynamics may arise. Because I expect there to be a giant flood of interest and money uh, starting to come in once there's one player that has the clear advantage from a technology and scale perspective. You know, I think the technology piece is still a little dubious because, yes, Waymo and other companies can operate in these cities, but like it's like one city or like two or three cities. It's not that many. And it's very limited. But if you can get a player in that has a scale to operate in multiple areas and they're able to do so at a fraction of the cost, theoretically, then at that point, I think all the 
the, the floodgates open. And then you'll see every single day on, on the news and the TV, the self-driving future has arrived. Welcome to the Jetsons. You know, it's like it's you, you can already see it happening. So I can understand why the full self-driving picture is much more wait and see approach because it's such a game-changing technology. But it does appear that the player with the scale will win. And for me, it's hard to see anyone else outside of Tesla that has that scale. Because the technology, again, the technology is one piece. But getting enough cars that can drive themselves is a completely different story. And if your cars are limited by how many random sensors you can put on the car that are you know, capped to 1,000 units a year, and then you have Tesla pumping millions of units a year that can do the same exact thing, it's, it's, it's obvious who's going to win. It's very obvious who's going to win. So it just, it just comes down to can Tesla do it? And if we take Elon's words for what they uh, hopefully are, which is true, and he's 100% confident they'll get it done, uh, then it's just a, it's just one of those things where it's just, okay, so it seems like the future is already written for this technology, for this sort of thing, and it's just a matter of waiting to see who jumps in to take part of that future. And how does Tesla play in that sort of arena? And who are the governments that are going to say no? Who are the regulators that are going to go out of their way to ensure something like that doesn't happen, right? It's it's, it's going to be fascinating to watch. Uh, it's, it's watching the world transform <laughs> in the next, call it, three to five years. It's so weird. It's such a weird in time. It's such a weird, such a weird time. Weird in time. Why would I say something like that? But it's such a weird, I don't know, who cares? Anyway, sorry. <laughs> point in time maybe um time. i have a question yeah for the panel based on elon's comments in the earnings call did anyone's uh timeline change for when they expect the first jurisdiction you know we'll, we can call it even single city like when is the first tesla robo taxi going to have a paying customer that is approved in that jurisdiction you think it's 2023 2024 2025 and you know what did you think it was before and after his comments on the call was that modified mine's been the same mine's been second half 2023 but i'm curious to hear y'all's i was undefined before the call and i was undefined after the call and when he was pressed about like a level four level five he kind of meandered around that topic also so I don't think, you know, if, if I was his lawyer and, and you know, the, we were talking about, well, this question might be asked and how can I answer it? I would say, you really don't know. So just, you know, you can't say. I don't think there's a, I don't think he knows. And I was going to say on top of that, there's a difference between the states and the feds. So you might get a state to do it, um, but the fed might still step in and saying, uh, you know, transportation that affects interstate commerce is solely a federal issue and the fed has the ability and right to regulate and the sole right to regulate and then you could have a battle between the states the a state and the feds but you know again that kind of remains to be seen i got a feeling that about this discussion about the level four level five doesn't seem like elon is that interested because seems like his approach at least to me is that we'll just have the car that drives itself and i'll and 
I'll let others just worry about what, what, how to name it and how to classify it. Uh, not really bothered by by this this classification. And uh, on the on the regulation front, correct me if I'm wrong, but I remember that some states already have some law in place that actually allows self-driving cars or maybe even for, forbids like blocking the the development of of robot taxi i think it was florida if i remember correctly but it might be well, i think this is why the wrong. level four or five question is important is because in the jurisdictions that allow like waymo and some of these companies to operate there are definitions about that and the vehicle would have to meet those requirements in order to operate in those jurisdictions um so yeah that's that's the reason that that is a an important definitional question um i think for me I, i'm i'm thinking mid 2024 is the first time that we'll actually see a paying customer and that it will be probably in one of the same jurisdictions that currently allows waymo to operate do oh my god i clicked the wrong thing what a mess uh i have that part of the uh or a call queued up where elon answers a question about uh level four level five are you guys cool listening through it one more time and kind of seeing if we can get any nuggets yeah all right let me go ahead and do that and let me see if i know how to do it this time because last time i was a disaster all right go ahead and mute and uh, we'll get this started Yeah, we can hear you. Okay, sorry about that. Um, any update on full self-driving? I think you had said a couple quarters ago it would be available by the end of the year. Is that still possible? Is it? Would it still be like a level four or level five that you're talking about? And are there any sort of regulatory hurdles you'd have to think about? We, as I said earlier, we're, we're expecting to release the full self-driving software to anyone who orders the package um, by the end of this year. Um, it's a separate matter as to is it, will it have regulatory approval. It, it won't have regulatory approval at that time. Um, but, um, the, but the car will be able to take you from your home to your work, your friend's house, to the grocery store, um, without you touching the wheel. So it's looking very good. And it would mean like level four, level five kind of traditional definition you're talking about. Um, well, there's there's a debate as like what's the what are the interventions per mile and all those maybe the safety interventions per mile. Um, like we're not we're not saying that that's it's, that's quite ready to to have no one behind the wheel. Um, it's just that they will you will almost never have to touch the control the vehicle controls um so like when i came to giga texas today uh, from um friend's house i never touched any of the controls all the way in here um and then and then it, it, there, there is a longer process of like what's called the march of nines of like how many nines reliability do you need before uh you can you can really be comfortable saying uh, that the car could drive with no one in it, um, and um, you know that's, that's some subjectivity as to how many nines you need. 
uh, but I think we'll be pretty close to uh, having enough nines that you can have no one in the car by the end of this year. Um, and uh, certainly, without, without question, that's whatever in my mind um, next year. And I think we'll also have enough data next year to be able to assure to regulators that uh, the car is safer, much safer than the average human. Um, and just as a follow up, uh, you mentioned in the prior questions about IRA. I mean, it sounded like you thought you could get. Okay. Uh, so what I heard was definitely next year, no one in the car. That to me, it seems like a level five. What do you guys think? That they would have the data to provide to regulators that that's possible. So then there's the whole regulatory approval process that then comes after that. Right. And but, I think um, the, the, the level four, level five, I think that's that's silly. It should just be called backseat driving. When you can sit in your backseat, <laughs> that's when all is all is done. Yeah, and it seems to me that yeah, that Elon is not really bothered and uh, he would try to convince the regulators to use some other metric that is more uh, quantifiable like the number of interventions. That sounds like he would like to move the conversation to something like that. I thought that was the weakest part of his of the call for him, by the way. I, I just didn't think he felt particularly comfortable talking about it, whereas other things he was in a different mindset. Sounded like somebody had kind of like talked to him beforehand and kind of like kept him uh, less enthusiastic and uh, less making declarations about, uh, you know, conclusions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I could, I, I think that one was a little definitely uh, can be interpreted as quite wishy-washy for sure. I think the China demand thing was also kind of wishy-washy that he was talking about. Um, he, he didn't give any direct answers. And I think there was a sort of a little bit of a variable there that he wanted, did he want to piss off uh chinese government because if he outright comes out and says they have a recession and we're just going to divert sales and become make it an export hub directly or you know like i just feel like there's more <laughs> to that than it seems it's not a demand question it's a question of okay who's getting your cars you know so if china can't get your cars right now that means they're not going to get anyone's cars because their economy is basically collapsing so that's not a tesla problem that's a that's a bigger problem real quick i brought up the levels for of self-driving that were uh, asked on the call. So the question was, will Tesla achieve level four, level five uh, uh, here in the next, I guess by the end of this year or next year? And then you kind of heard Elon's answer. As, as defined by the self-driving gods, I guess, level four uh, is called high automation. The vehicle performs all driving tasks under specific circumstances. Geofencing is required. Human override is still an option. So that's that's a that's sort of an interesting caveat, uh, and then full automation means the vehicle performs all driving tasks under all conditions. Zero human attention or interaction is required. So from the answer that Elon gave, uh, so that they'll have data ready by the end of next year to present to regulators where they can do level five is what I is what I got away from the call because no human in the car means no interventions, right? Um, and then it seemed like level four 
was essentially assured from from the sounds of it by the end of next year with waiting for level five. Is that how you guys interpreted that as well? Or am I barking up the wrong tree? Again, those are confusing to me because uh, level four mentions geofencing is required, which I don't think Tesla would share this view, for example. But I think they'll um, do it just so, to like block out jurisdictions. Okay, we're live in Miami today. Like for for the next six months, we're live in Miami. You know, okay, in that it's sense, an easy enough maybe. thing. Yeah, yeah. And it can also be. So this is one of the areas where I'm a little bit confused on those definitions. Is you know geofencing to what like how off road of a condition do you say is geofenced off? Like, can you just go drive through a field, or are you actually confined to roads? So there is some ambiguity there that I don't fully understand. Yeah, I'm trying to pull up the wiki. Let's see if uh, here, so if we get a different definition here. Excuse me. Okay, what's there's so much here. Okay, uh, for uh, the driving modes specific performance by an automated driving system of all aspects of the dynamic driving task. Even if a human driver does not respond appropriately to a request to intervene, the car can pull over safely by guiding system. And then level five is under all roadway and environmental conditions that can be managed by a human driver. So I'm still not seeing, well, I guess the, the, the geofence question was kind of correlates to this because this is like level five means it doesn't like that's the field thing, right? If you're in the middle of a field, for some reason, it should still be able to take care of it. All roadway and environmental conditions. But then four is even if a human driver doesn't respond, then the system can sort of make safely move its way towards a place where, um, what what does it call it? Uh, towards a place where it's not going to endanger the driver or the vehicle or anybody around them. So, um, so to me, it seems like, to me, it seems like level four. Level four is within within grasp of tesla to achieve i believe because all this really says is just get it to a point where the car can move around and we can keep the driver behind the wheel and even if level five takes six years or 10 years for regulators to approve the technology is still going to be there you know they'll get here but they'll just have the person behind the wheel so it's kind of like the question becomes Will there be people able to catch up to level five if there was such delay from a regula regulatory perspective? And does that mean that that changes the story of Tesla in the long term? I guess is the way I'm thinking about it now. Um, and I'm not so sure it matters because it goes back to scale. You know, is there going to be another company out there that's once if if and when they solve this so full self driving question, will they have the scale? to put millions of self-driving cars on the road within the next five to 10 years. It's hard to tell. It doesn't seem like that's the case right now, but there could be somebody that comes along in the next five years that could do that, you know, potentially licensing Tesla's technology. Who knows? Any thoughts there? Yeah, yeah I was going to say is I think, and I think Kuba alluded to it and uh, you you just alluded to it too. I think what he, what he said was by the end of next year, we will have workable full self-driving minus regulatory approval. That, that's what I think it comes down to. And he has no idea how long it's going to take to get regu regulatory approval, but people can certainly use the system and comfortably get around. And uh, how long, you know, when it's 
officially able to be used under the auspices of the government that, you know, no control over that. Yeah. The one thing I've noticed with my drives as of late with full self driving is that I'm I'm much more willing to put it in really weird spots that I I was scared to turn on the system before, like scared mentally. Um, I would still think that the car would behave safely, but I'm just I don't want to be that jackass on the road that's going to have anxiety because it's behaving incorrectly and some dude's going to give me the finger. I just want to want to put up with it, you know. Whereas now I'm willing to turn it on anywhere, basically. Like I don't care how congested it is or how complex the road condition is. Now I'm, I'm willing to do that, and I, I'm I'm a, I'm not near as ballsy as say a, a whole Mars catalog where he just sits there calmly behind the wheel and the thing is like driving head on uh, towards a train and he's like I'm sure it'll be fine. I'm, I don't know if that happened. I'm just saying like that's the sort of like trust he has in the system, right? Um, and I'm not saying that the car would do that or crash into the train. I'm just saying like if that situation arises, he's confident the car is going to behave correctly. Um, but now, now I'm sort of leaning towards that safety aspect, and I've started uh, bringing my wife along on my full self-driving drives, and I'm using her as a gauge to see how close we are to that sort of level four, level five future. Because if she starts saying, oh, yeah, just turn this on, or if I turn it on and she doesn't care, then to me that feels like, okay, we're much closer because my wife is very sensitive to that stuff. Like she, I would turn it on for two minutes, and then we do one thing kind of like awkward, and she's like, can you please turn that shit off? It's like pissing me off. Like, all right, fine. So I'll turn it off. So I can't, I couldn't even use full self driving with her in the car, really. But I mean, I did, but she, she got really anxious about it. But now it's getting to the point where she, she seems much more comfortable with the system. And so she's my signal. I use her as my level four signal. Um, especially with this latest update, it, it made it some pretty dramatic improvements just from like a confidence standpoint, which I think is really the biggest limiting factor. Shout out Jordan Gisigi when it comes to this thing being adopted uh, for the whole. Um, really fleet and so everybody can start utilizing this thing yeah and then on Ashok's uh, occupancy network that he talked about the uh, I think was it the CVPR conference that he talked about that at but basically the point was this should be don't get in a crash ever for any reason system right and if they can get that working I think that really satisfies the requirement for level four um because you know it could be that don't get into a crash means i just pull over to the side of the roadway um and so yeah i think whenever that is really operating to their design intent that that should pretty much satisfy that requirement yeah one of those i was gonna say one of those unintended consequences is once that is out and perfected the auto insurance business ceases to exist exactly which is interesting because a lot of people are talking about tesla insurance and in my head it's like who cares like this thing's going to be like a billion dollars a year max like it's going to be a nothing burger when it costs five bucks to insure a driver or a rider in this case okay so what <laughs> you know the reason why it's such a big industry now is because people are dumb and none of us know how to drive it, apparently. So it's like, that's why that, that thing exists in the first place. So um, I, I never well, It's going to be a long time before yeah. Teslas are the only cars on the road. And it is somewhat difficult to avoid uh, yeah, until that point by other, other vehicles. So, and you know, that's that'll fair. be curious to see how, how do other vehicles crazy behavior impact the occupancy network's ability to avoid those accidents. So 
that'll be really interesting. We could meet back here in 2032 and uh, see how we did. Yes. You know what's interesting about that too? Like think about the affordability of the vehicle from that respect, right? Uh, depending on where you live, insurance could be like 300 bucks a month if you're a good driver. Like New York City is like bananas expensive. Pennsylvania is like a fraction. Texas out here is cheap too, um, which it shouldn't be because the driving I see out here, I don't know if you see this, Hans, but boy, there are people like half the road's like drunk or it feels like they're, I don't know, it's... I love Texas, but like by far the worst drivers I've ever seen in my life. Sorry. Uh, shout out Texans. Yeah. The, um, I'm not going <laughs> to argue with you on that one. Okay. <laughs> my God. It's crazy. Um, but I could go on a rant on this for like 30 minutes, but I'm not going to. And I'm trying really hard not to. The affordability, the net affordability of the car, I think we're starting to get to the point when full self-driving turns on, the net affordability of, of Tesla's become, again, a significant advantage versus every other competing car because not only do you have a car that you can theoretically if you wanted to sell as at five ten percent margin an affordable car that's going to have the half the cost of a model y today you could sell for uh you know well under twenty seven thousand dollars if you didn't want to make three percent margin then from a from a monthly cost if that thing is equipped with this uh system that will basically never crash and the only time it'll crash is if somebody else does something stupidly wrong <laughs> and it like they, they cause you harm in that way, then theoretically the insurance cost for that vehicle should be significantly less than any other vehicle that's on the road that doesn't have that system. So then you have the savings from the uh, electricity versus gas. You have the savings of this car versus the competing market. And then you have a savings from an insurance perspective. And so again, you think about the Tesla effect of people going up in price points I would have never bought a Model S in my life. That thing was 70. We had two of them at one point, $75,000 cars. I would have never in a trillion years spent that much money on a car until that Tesla effect came up. But then now you have these additional variables that keep coming in. And so this compact car with full self-driving and a lower insurance, like there's no way in my head that this thing sells for less than 30% margin. There's no way. There's absolutely no way. So that picture starts to become clearer and clearer as we go sort of towards this path. And I'm curious to see once this product gets unveiled, I'm kind of switching topics here a little bit because I guess that's where my brain went. Sorry, we can bring it back. Just want to finish my thought. Um, it's, I blanked, sorry. Who's next? I was going to say, plus <laughs> the fact is, if you don't pay 300 bucks a month for insurance and I am going to sell you a entertainment subscription for your car, at a hundred bucks a month, exactly. You got the money available, and, it's pure profit. Uh, and you think you just save three hundred, so you're not spending money. You know, it's the psychologically. Exactly. Yeah, T Tesla's becoming a vacuum of money. That's really what it, it's. It's vacuuming up people's money, and it, they're not doing it on purpose necessarily. They're just creating uh, such a value proposition. That's such a good point, Richard. The psychology of savings is going to label people, enable people that to take dollars that would have spent somewhere else. They're going to throw it at Tesla, and then Tesla's going to be like, "Thanks, we'll use it to <laughs> do a buyback." I don't know. <laughs> They're already using all the cash that they have to do what they want, uh, per se, right now. But it's wild. It's, a, it's like it almost feels like a redistribution of wealth in a way, but a weird like. I don't know if I'm okay with it. Sort of like it's it's odd. It's such a weird like time. You know, yeah, it's weird. Um, go ahead, Richard. Yeah, I was going to say I had three quickies I wanted to bring up. Hit them because we talked about one a couple of weeks ago. The the semis, 
So the 50,000 2024 semis, that is not insignificant. That's it. That's even more than we had estimated that early in the run. Pull up the model. If they do 20, you know, 50,000 in 2024 at approximately $200,000 a copy, and I'm just making up a number. And then on top of that, you have FSD on top of that. That's 10 billion plus at a, you know, at at least the 30% margin, including FSD. You know, it's probably much more than 30%. That's a significant additional, uh, you know, operating profit off of that, uh, off of that one little division. So in our model that we did last time, which was awesome, I, this was such a fun exercise. Um, so 50,000 units on the model, we said 2028, 20, that it would reach 50,000 with an ASP of 270, which I think it's probably realistic at this case, in this point, the margin of 35%, which is probably low gross profit of 4,700 bucks. Uh, if, uh, AS, uh, full self-driving gets sold for 50,000 a pop for that, uh, semi, which why wouldn't it, it, it would add another 2,500 bucks of, uh, gross profit to the vehicle. Um, but I'm sorry, $4.7 billion per year. And then 50,000 per semi FSD times 50,000 semis per year adds another $2.5 billion of gross profit to the bottom line, which is $7.3 billion in, uh, gross profit uh, that goes straight to the bottom line of Tesla, which at a PE of 20 adds about $146 billion to the market cap at a PE of 50 is 366. So this thing, this thing semi is going to add at the very least when it's at 50,000 per year, roughly 100 to 200 billion, maybe more 100 to 200 billion dollars to the market cap of Tesla, which is one what one six to one third of where they're at right now uh and the question becomes when is this thing going to reach fifty thousand units uh poured into this model it's going to be 2028 but it could be sooner than that so yeah i just want to pro pull it yeah, up yeah they do that in 2024 we may not see the fsd uh we may not be able to see fifty thousand dollars sale price on fsd in 2024 for those units but you know they can sell those fifty thousand units and then sell the FSD option on the vehicles at a later point in time. So yeah, it's just real interesting to see that their production targets are that aggressive. Um, uh, I think we can go back and look. I'm pretty sure he did say that they're looking at fifty thousand produced in 2024. That would be nuts. Um, yeah, that's the way I heard then, it. Also. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what he said. 2170 cells in them which also i i'm not honestly surprised by remember that this was a vehicle that they announced in 2017 well before 4680s were ever talked about and so i think they were always planning to use 2170s and the reason that that's interesting is it means that semi ramp and cybertruck ramp are completely decoupled so you don't have to depend on the cells that you're going to use for cybertruck to make your semis um, and so we really should be able to see pretty significant ramp up of production in semis and not have that impact other models. So the question I, is, is semi, sorry, Kuba, go ahead. Uh, yeah, I got some uh, tangent, so please continue. No, no I was going to say, is the semi baked into the price today then? Do you guys think or no? Because if it's not, then we should see no. an appreciation from this, no. right? No, it's not. 
It's not in. Okay. Okay, cool. So the tangent is that uh, I think that semis are going to be popular uh, among people like modders, etc., and people who just want to harvest the battery because just notice that you pay less than twice the price of the Model S and you get 10 times the battery. Uh, so you're paying basic, if you just pay, you want to just buy the semi and use the battery for something else, for stationary storage or for resto modes, etc. You're just paying $200 per kilowatt hour, basically, which is a good price for the end consumer. How much does the mega pack cost? One, yeah, the mega pack is also one megawatt hour, right? But I think it's somewhere mm -hmm. near $1 million. I'm not sure, but certainly more than 200,000. So that's that's interesting if that's going to happen because it seems like a good ratio of price to, to battery uh, capacity. Wow. Yeah, that's a great observation. And, and I was going to say the analysts cannot um, account for that until they deliver the first one. And then they could speculate about how many they're going to deliver next year because now there's one at least one delivered. And may, it might be that the chart that we did might be the chart that they actually use, because that's like a quarter <laughs> of what was predicted. So maybe that's kind of accurate for them. For real. Are we turning into Wall Street? Is that what's happening here? Wow. That's such an interesting point, Kuba. So like, what are, what are some... So stationary storage was one. Like, I, I'm curious if now there's going to be this brand new industry that's going to pop up, up around semi where traditionally we would think of this thing as just as a hauler of containers but like because it has such utility from a storage perspective that a bunch of other industries will pop up around this this sort of this this uh energy pack on wheels right that's really what it is at that point one one gigawatt hour of energy being carried around this thing on wheels it's a mega pack on one, wheels. One megawatt. Yeah, it will be great. One megawatt. What did I say? Gigawatt? Yeah. That's sorry. That's not what I meant to say. My bad. That would be fucking crazy. <laughs> Maybe soon. Maybe we'll get there one day. Interesting. I, I also wanted to raise something if, if we pass that about the Cybertruck and its production. So I, I, you know, I've been thinking about it. Why is taking Austin and Berlin so long to ramp up? At least that's my impression. It's slower than I would have anticipated. And it's always in comparison to uh, Shanghai, which was probably in comparison to Fremont. And I think, you know, Shanghai improved on Fremont, but then Austin and Berlin went to the single, you know, to the new castings, which I'm sure eventually would probably save them a, a shitload of time. But maybe at first it's not easy. And maybe it's like starting up. Maybe you know that China is not an example now for starting a new factory because we're using new processes, and maybe that's why it's taking so long, the the new castings. But eventually, that'll be great, but not now. And um, I was thinking about the status of the Cybertruck. It went to tooling. You know, it went from pre-production, I think, to tooling. But and everybody got excited, and I heard the call, and I heard a discussion, but I didn't hear any discussion that said that in 2023, there would be material production of Cybertruck. I heard stuff, but not that. And I don't see, based upon how the ramp up at uh, Austin has gone, 
how we are going to how we are going to get from tooling to early production to production all in 2023 doesn't seem realistic to me so i and i'm by the way i'm fine with that if cybertruck is really produced in numbers in 2024 because that's great maybe that semis maybe that's why semis are going to be such a big number earlier maybe they're going to focus on the semis but i think that's more realistic that 2024 is really where we're going to see real numbers not 2023. i actually think hans has a good take on the on the berlin and austin not um ramping as much as shanghai you dropped it in one of the comments i think yesterday or the day before yeah, so I think I agree with you, Richard. I, I don't really expect to see Cybertruck deliveries materially this year. Um, I think it'll be, it may be earlier than, because I think they set themselves like a, a deadline of June, essentially, for really beginning deliveries of next year. So I wouldn't be surprised to see them earlier next year, but yeah, nothing, nothing significant this year. Um, yeah, one of the things to just remember is that Shanghai was not in the ramp up process or being built or any of that during COVID supply chain disruptions. So I think that does throw some wrenches into how fast you can move on all that stuff. Um, and I also think it's also material impacted by 4680 ramp taking longer than expected. So I think it's both of those things. Um, you could be right, there may be some impact from introducing the casting technology uh i think that's a pretty like they've got it up and running on the model wise i would be surprised if that's a major factor i think it's mostly the 4680s so that's why i love hearing on the call that they were able to triple their output and they're basically moving into the steep part of the s curve on ramping up 4680 production but that also means that they're counting on that in order to have you know, significant ramp on the Cybertruck. And so if we see any hiccups as they move forward, um, that that could also cause delays. So, you know, there's reason to be hopeful and optimistic, but also, you know, maybe just be aware that there's still some potential for that to continue to go slower than we would like. And then that would have material impact. I also think that there's a part, I don't know how big, I guess somewhere the order of 10% that uh, people at, at, in China are are working harder, maybe even longer. And that's what contributed in, in some part to the success of the of the Shanghai ramp. And I think even Elon, like he couldn't answer directly that Chinese Tesla workers are better than all the other ones, but he alluded to it that there is Tesla level and there is China Tesla level that is even a, a bit above. I agree with that. I think I do think that the the majority of the impact though of the supply chain disruption because of COVID and the other stuff is probably like probably call it sixty to seventy percent of the sort of gap. And then I would say, you know, thirty to forty percent sort of the delta would be China just faster. They just get stuff done quicker you know they have a different culture I've, i was reading a few things about like sort of how the, there's this thing in chinese culture where the the people from that country are sort of come from this lineage of people that are they have a mentality that's rooted in agriculture and like a lot of like growing rice 
and I, I, hopefully this doesn't come across as some crazy thing, but like this is this is from the sort of learnings I had. But um, that part of the world is uh, one of the biggest exporters and producers of rice, and rice is one of the hardest crops to manage because you have to constantly pay attention to it. You have to constantly work on on that crop, and that requires a sort of work ethic that is like unparalleled versus any other crop, really. And uh, it's not a secret that a majority that country was mainly agricultural until recently, until they went through a giant industrial revolution. But that mentality still remains of like, you know, you got to get up and work. You got to get up and work. You got to get up and work. And that has translated into the manufacturing, which is why they have such a big gap. And I found that to be really, really interesting. And I think holds true uh, in a lot of respects. So, um, but it's also it's also cool to see how Berlin and Austin. Berlin seems to be a little bit ahead of Austin. I would have thought Austin was going to be ahead of Berlin because of how sort of, you know, I guess there was more bureaucracy in Berlin. There's more laws around labor. Uh, there's a lot more um, controls. But Berlin seems to be kicking ass in comparison to Austin spe specifically. So that's been cool to see. Now, could we see a, a drastic change in Austin here in the next couple months as they really get into the, the ramp and that sort of Texas, you know, sort of a, a hard work ethic kicks in and they start going hard on that. Not that, not that they aren't now. I'm sure they're working as hard as they can, but um, it's been interesting to watch. But I think the observation around COVID and supply chain disruptions, once that alleviates, especially if we go into next year and there's any sort of like true global recession that's going to theoretically open up capacity, in a lot of different places because the end consumer is not going to be purchasing as much. Theoretically, you should have a glut, not maybe not a glut, but you should have a, an opening of bandwidth from suppliers and all these other uh, uh, parts in the economy that's going to allow Tesla to order whatever they need as much as they need. And there's no waiting because no one else is getting it. Um, now, it can't get to the threshold where they're getting so little orders from everyone else that they go under <laughs> and Tesla can't prop them up on their on their own. But you should see that I'm, I'm very much expecting a very evident gap in the ability to produce things in a recessionary environment where everyone else is at the very least like shrinking a little bit or shrinking massively. And then Tesla is going to accelerate. It's going to be a very weird dynamic, I think. It's going to be a really, really weird dynamic. And it's not just going to be in the auto industry. I think it's going to be in many, many industries. We're seeing reports from Apple that few, fewer folks are ordering iPhone 14 versus what they thought, um, which kind of points to the, some sort of recessionary environment. So, yeah. Curious to see how that plays out next year. Okay. We're almost at two hours. Any, uh, any parting thoughts? Any last topics we want to hit here before uh, we wrap this sucker up? Yeah, I've got a question uh, on, yeah. about the work ethic. Uh, was it a joke or is Texas really known among the other states for the particularly yeah. strong work ethic? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I kind of feel it. I see it around here. I mean, just walking around and um, just interfering, like not interfering, but like having a relationship with businesses and going into their store. There's just a different vibe. I feel people are just prouder to work hard out here. Like I see it very evidently in sh in shopping centers like HEB. This uh, grocery chain here is called uh, uh, Here Everything's Better, which is the most Texan thing I've ever heard in my life. But that's the name of the grocery store. Hans knows what's up. Uh, he may have worked there when he was young. Who knows? Maybe he was one of those baggers. Uh, but he, um, 
the people there are just just even bagging product. They're like just proud to do it. They're just out there working as hard as they can. And I, every HEB store that I go to, I see the same thing. I go to a re- like a f- restaurant. I see a lot of hard work, nice people, really warm. Uh, versus the Northeast when I lived in Pennsylvania, it was my God, people hated to be there. Well, I'm like, what the hell? I can't wait to go home. It was a completely different vibe, completely different vibe. Out here, people are very, very proud. Um, and it's, uh, I, I feel it. And, and I can tell from the people I've met, they're, they're proud of the work they do. They're proud of, of making things of value. And I think it's a longstanding tradition. I think it's part of the code of Texas is like work hard. I read something somewhere. I don't know if Hans can sort of talk more about this, but this is what I've experienced as a brand new Texan of two years. This is the kind of vibe I'm getting. So I don't know if Hans, you can back that up or anybody else, but um, yeah. Yeah. I'm an import too. Uh, I've been here a little bit longer, but yeah, definitely people have a, a pretty strong work ethic. I mean, you do have sectors or places where people are not, but I think it's important to note that the oil industry is such a big thing here and that industry is super cutthroat and you like the expectation not only for the um, like work ethic that you put in when you're there but also the amount of work that you do is very very high in that industry um and so i think that kind of bleeds over into a lot of things and then yeah i mean texans are extremely proud and work is one of the things that they're proud of so yeah, so let me add about <laughs> so let me add about Germany because they also known among Europeans for being particularly hard workers and there is also I might be obviously biased here as a Pole but there is a lot of Poles working in the in Berlin Gigafactory as well because it's like thirty miles from the border uh, and Poles especially when they are working abroad they are very hard workers as well so I think that also helps uh, with the ramp. Uh, so it's possibly not, I wouldn't expect that it's the, well, compared to China, possibly they're not as crazy, but uh, it's possibly all the other factors that are weighing in on the ramp, I think. It's fascinating. And everybody knows that Agura Hill's nickname is the city where everybody works the hardest in the world, quotation marks. <laughs> Agora Hills, California, baby. Sounds like uh, their first factory was probably, I'm just kidding. I don't want to hate on Californians. I love you, Californians. I love you, California. The most beautiful state in the world. Um, that's so funny. Okay. Anything else? What do you guys think? Go Bruins over the Oregon Ducks. Ooh. What do you guys think about that? Anybody want to put a shout out for their sports team? I'll take team? that. <laughs> <laughs> did, you, did you go to, wait, Bruins are uh, uh, UCLA? Right? Yes. Yeah. Mm. You yeah. went did you go there? Huh? Yeah, I went there. I graduated in eighteen forty two, I believe. From no, he, UCLA? He's commenting yeah. on my so I've got an Oregon hat. Oh you do? There. I didn't notice that. Oh, notice that. I didn't yes. Notice that. Oh I did oh. notice that. Oh that's even better. That's even better. <laughs> yeah, no. Wow. <laughs> Holy shit. So we have an actual rivalry here. Okay. We what's do. the give me some predictions? What's so the score? Oregon, Oregon's favored by I think six. Okay. UCLA we... has given the Ducks problems in the past in times when they weren't supposed to. So uh, I'll I'll put that out there. But I think that the Ducks should be able to take it. Oh man! I, I will say let's do, let's do this. We'll we'll play it straight up, and whoever wins the first time we actually meet in person will buy the other person the beverage of their choice. I think that's fair. <laughs> yeah. There you go. Yeah. 
just for of course we're talking about Tesla, but we got to talk about mm-hmm. sports for like the last minute of the stream here. Um, yeah, Oregon favorite six and a half. Uh, I think so. UCLA is coming to the Big Ten in a couple of years, right? Yeah. Oh, no, this Cal or is no, UCLA? UCLA and USC. UCLA, right? Yeah. Yeah. And USC. So UCLA is going to win. <laughs> 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 That's my prediction. I'm gonna I'm gonna root for the Big Ten team. Although Oregon, they lost to Ohio State, right? That was the first game of the season, or was it? Or Georgia? Who did it? Georgia. It was Georgia. You're right. Yeah. Um, but they're good. They're always good and they're really good at a home. Good team. Yeah. And they're at home. Favorite six and a half. We'll see. Yeah. So can you explain to the foreigner one thing? Because I see that this game is, is going to be played in Eugene, Oregon, but uh, mm-hmm. Oregon is listed as the second team. Usually in, in Europe, we play the host. This is the home yeah, the team. hosting first. Yeah, yeah. we reverse. We, we reverse yeah. it. Yeah, we reverse yeah. it. Interesting. The, the yeah. way to read it is UCLA at Oregon. Mm-hmm. So that's why it's listed second. So it's team at team. Okay. So that's why that's the logic. That, but it's funny because in in the MLS and the soccer league in in the states, the home team is first. So mm-hmm. I'm like, why'd you reverse it for the MLS? Like, we're, I think they're just because I think they have a lot of like international fans, yeah, so they want to yeah. keep it consistent, probably. Yeah, yeah it would be hella confusing to all the football fans around the world. Yes, I, and the I crazy thing to keep the soccer, football. I think Elon should buy a team. He almost bought Man U. He should have finished the the purchase. I thought you he know? was kid- I thought he was kidding about that, but I think he really should buy a team. I think it'd be like a. I mean, if he ends up buying Twitter, I think he might have so many different uh, avenues to do different things that there could be a real possibility that he would get into something like that. I really don't. Is there a good candidate, Austin? What in Austin to be? Well, they have a soccer team they just opened up, uh, which does I think is first in their division. Others oh, playoffs right now, but yeah. last year that was their first year, but this year they're doing really well. I think um, the in thing to do now is to buy a pickleball team. So maybe you can yeah. buy a pickleball team. <laughs> Fastest growing sport in America, apparently, or in the world. Apparently, like apparently, apparently, it's like a it's a it's a weird tennis. I I'll I'll just won't play pickleball out of principle. Because it's so weird, um, but uh, I'm rooting for Penn State. Penn State's uh, playing at home. They had a big loss last week, but I'm hoping they win. They're favored by four and a half. It's the wideout game. Um, Kuba, I don't know. I don't know if you're f- uh, familiar with um, with college football at all, but let me show you. Uh, I know oh, that it exists. Right oh, you know that it exists. Yeah. Let me just show you what this looks like. <laughs> so they have this thing called the wideout, which is like. Um, thing where the entire stadium uh, turns white. And so what this is what the stadium looks like. It's 110,000 people in there. And it's an amateur sport, so the players don't even get paid. Or they're going to start mm-hmm. getting paid this year. I yeah, think. they only get paid a little bit. Yeah. But uh, this is a sort of like environment. It's just a just a freaking amateur sport. And you have all these fanatics in there. But it's a good time. If you're ever in the States, Cuba, let me know. Because... Um, the one thing I always tell people that come here internationally is like, go go watch a college football game. Because mm-hmm. like, it's just a different vibe. It's a completely different seems vibe. It's like it's, a must. Yeah. But, you, but you also can go, I went last night, I went to LAFC versus LA Galaxy. And that is, feels like a very European environment. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. All right. Should we end it? We should yep. end it. Let's do it. All right, everybody. Thank you so much. We are Penn State. Go Bruins. Screw the Ducks. I'm just kidding. (laughs) 
And uh, Kuba, who's your team? Who do you follow? What's we want to give a plug for any sporting teams? <laughs> Vidza Fuch. That's my hometown. Of okay. Soccer, of course. <laughs> Are they playing right now, or is it a off season? I don't follow it, but closely, to be honest, lately. Uh, but, yeah. Fairweather fan. When I was young in the nineties, they they were rocking it, and they were playing in the Champions League even. Nice. Oh, okay. Really cool. Well, I hope they get back in there. Maybe next season. Who knows? We'll see. We'll make it happen. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Put some good juju. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for following. Thank you for supporting the channel. Thank you so much for sticking with us. Have a great weekend. Enjoy your weekend. And we'll see you again next Monday where Elon could finally buy Twitter and maybe sell some shares. We'll see what happens. All right, everybody. Thanks, y'all. And broadcast.